Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio episode 131 with Drew Manning from Fit to Fat to Fit. There was an obvious disconnect between me and my clients who were overweight because I would get frustrated when they would give me their excuses of why they couldn't just follow the meal plans and the workouts that I was giving them. But in reality, if you're really going to help someone transform, not just their body, they have to know how to transform on the mental, the emotional, and spiritual side as well. And so these are the things that I focus on now. Because like you said, you could give someone the best meal plans and workouts and the best food and the best trainer. None of that matters if that person doesn't know how to overcome these mental and emotional challenges that they're struggling with. And I feel like, if, especially in the fitness industry, if we taught people how to focus on overcoming these challenges, the physical challenges that they're facing will be so much easier. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. So before we ever let go of the old weight or have the energy we want, real transformation starts with making a decision, a decision that stems from a burning desire to change. And on today's podcast, we're talking about the discipline and emotional fitness it takes to make this decision and step into the new version of ourselves with my good friend and fantastic podcast host, Drew Manning from fit to fat to fit. So we all know that we develop certain eating habits as children that can stay with us as we age. I know I did. And although it's difficult to break the cycle of unhealthy eating at times, the truth is that we can all learn to enjoy feeling great in our body by eating nutritious and empowering foods. Now, if you don't know Drew, you are going to get to know him all the way to the basement on this show. He's talking about what it was like to step into his decision as a personal trainer to learn what it was like to carry 70 plus pounds of fat, then lose it all so he could better understand his own client struggles. Drew is going to vulnerably and authentically unpack all of the emotional hardships he experienced when going through this weight gain journey and weight loss journey. And he also uncovers the actionable things we can all do, no matter who we are, what our age is, or how stressful our lives are. We're talking about why the weight stays on and its relationship to unprocessed emotions. We also get Drew's take on why he's exploring right now the ketogenic diet in such depth, how to take exogenous ketones, and how to actually manage ketosis to see if it's right for you. I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Drew. He went places that even surprised him. There are going to be some controversial things that may ruffle your feathers, but you know what? Just surrender to it, take it in, keep an open mind in this incredible conversation with Drew Manning. You know, I got the pleasure of meeting you at Paleo FX uh, that weekend, yeah. and you did a lot of speaking. I think most people, Drew, know you as Fit to Fat to Fit, but your journey is much deeper. I actually downloaded the book on Audible, so I've been listening to you, Unexpected Lessons from Gaining and Losing All This Weight. Tell people how you've gotten to fitness in the first place, man. I mean, what did that even look like for you? Did you come out of the womb like doing bicep curls? <laughs> That's a good question. Kind of. Um, <laughs> basically, I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters, which is crazy. My parents had 11 children, which is amazing. None of them were adopted, no twins or triplets, just one at a time. Every two years, pretty much, just like clockwork. And we all grew up playing sports. You know, I grew up playing football and wrestling from a very young age because that's what my brothers did. So I kind of followed suit and did what they did. And so from a very young age, fitness was a big part of my life. It, I naturally gravitated towards it because I saw my brother and his 
his uh, friends like playing high school football and I was still, you know, in elementary school and I'm like, man, I want to look like those guys. So I start like lifting and, you know, I was watching, you know, football all the time and, and just trying to be the best I could at sports because I felt like it was something that I was actually good at in life. Yeah. And so I naturally gravitated towards it. You had um, how many brothers and sisters? So I was one of eight boys and three girls. I have two kids myself. And so I know it's not easy. I have no idea how you do it with 11. I have no idea. <laughs> I could not imagine that, man. Well, you know, getting to read your book and learning about your story, I know that food has always played an integral role for you. And I think before you did this huge weight loss and then regain process that you shared so vulnerably with the entire country, the entire world, you actually dealt with this as a young child. You talked about with Melissa on the show that when junk food came around, you usually felt like you had to eat it at a young age. Why was that, man? You know, when you grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters, honestly, food was kind of scarce. And I feel like, you know, to feed 11 kids, like I said, I have no idea how my mom did that, but she did. And so we didn't really have junk food. I wouldn't say junk food. It would be unhealthy food now. But back then, my mom didn't really know. And she was just following the guidelines of, you know, of the media and, and marketing that was going on back then, which was just like, hey, low fat. And it was super easy and affordable to feed 11 kids with white bread, peanut butter sandwiches, casseroles, and, uh, you know, yeah, everything was made from scratch. And so some of it was healthy, but some of it was really unhealthy because it was more about quantity of food than quality of food. And so, yeah, I wouldn't really say it. Like, we didn't really have, like, things like we didn't have pizza. We didn't have sugary cereals because we couldn't afford that kind of stuff. Like we had to make everything from scratch, yeah. which sometimes was healthy and sometimes wasn't very healthy. I grew up, I've talked about in the show many times on welfare. So like government cheese, kick cereal, you know, no vegetables, no fruit. Did you ever feel like when you were a kid that you wanted different food or did you just accept what you got at the table? I accepted what I got at the table, but I would see my friends at school with like gushers and like, you know, Capri Suns and <laughs> all these yeah. like foods that I'm like, oh man, that looks so good. And I was so jealous of my friends that got to buy their school lunches because they got the pizza and like the the pretzel that they, that they could dip in cheese. And I was over here with my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the fifth day in a row that week, right? Huh. So I did get jealous, um, but I did eat the food that we had because I had no other choice. But I definitely was envious of my friends that had all like the processed foods that looked really good. Man, we'll definitely come back to eating habits and styles as children and how we get through that and overcome those mental and emotional roadblocks as adults. But for people that don't know this story, this fit to fat to fit journey, uh, Dr. Oz, you've been on so many shows, many, many interviews, many, many podcasts. Tell people that don't know, Drew, about this fit to fat to fit journey. Why'd you do it? Yeah. So basically in 2009, I became certified as a trainer. And like I said, my entire life, I grew up in shape and that's all I knew. And there was an obvious disconnect between me and my clients who were overweight because I would get frustrated when they would give me their excuses of why they couldn't just follow the meal plans and the workouts that I was giving them. And for me, in my mind, I'm like, you guys, it's so easy. You just stop drinking the soda. You put down the junk food. You go to the gym. You do the workouts that I give you. Why is it so hard for you guys to just do what I'm telling you? And they would be like, oh, you know, uh, they would keep giving me excuses like I cheated. I, get, I didn't do the workout uh, because this and that. And I, like I said, would get frustrated and they would tell yeah. me, you know, Drew, you don't understand because for you, it's always been easy. And for us, it's hard. And I'm like, I don't get why it's so hard. You just do it. And so there's an obvious disconnect. And I was thinking of ideas of, of creating a better connection between trainer and client. And <laughs> for whatever reason, the idea, I just, this idea kind of popped up in my head of what if I get fat on purpose and document the whole thing. And All right, when did you get that download though? Were you sitting at a stoplight? Like, where were you? Uh, I don't know. I think I was just at home just thinking of ideas and it crossed my mind. I remember I instantly, 
I was just in the kitchen. I instantly went over and Googled like if anybody had ever done this before, <laughs> like on purpose <laughs> and uh, no one had. And so I was like, you know what? I think like it, it just, it felt like it was a calling. Like I needed to do this. And so I started calling friends and family. I'm like, you guys, I have this idea. Tell me what you think. And all like 99% of people were like, dude, you should totally do it. That would be awesome. Like that's crazy. But I think that would be really cool. The only person that would, didn't want me to do it was my mom. <laughs> she was like, I don't think it's <laughs> yeah. good for your health. And like, she was worried about me. And, but all my, like my, my brothers and friends were like, oh, you should totally do it. And then my wife at the time, she, uh, was pregnant. And so of course she's like, so you're telling me we're going to have donuts and cookies and good food in the house. Cause I was more of a health nut back then. And, uh, I was like, yeah, she's like, okay, let's, you should totally do it. <laughs> So you had clients that were quitting on you at times because you were a pretty like challenging trainer. I mean, you'd push people to their limits. Uh, it's something that came naturally for you. you. Like, as we talked about, you were always kind of inclined for fitness. Did you feel like that was kind of some of the ethos to understand what it would be like if the mind didn't crave workouts? When I first had this idea, I didn't really understand how it would evolve into what it what it is today. Like when I first had this idea of like, I'm going to do fit to fit to fit, I'm going to get fat on purpose. I just was thinking this was going to be a physical transformation. Like I would physically get fat and then maybe I would learn some lessons, but it was such an eye-opening experience. Like it totally changed my perspective of how I viewed my client's struggles. It ended up being way more of a mental and emotional journey than just a physical yeah journey, which is what I thought it was, was what I thought people struggled with. I'm like, you guys, here's the meal plans. Here's the workouts. Why aren't you just doing them? Like, it's not that hard. And so I couldn't separate easy from simple in my mind for people. Like mm. there's a big difference between something being simple and something being easy to apply. Like it's simple. People know they need to eat healthy and exercise, right? Like I think hundred percent people know that, but to apply yeah. it on a daily basis consistently, that's what's hard. Otherwise, everybody would be fit and, you know, in shape. And there's such a multitude of factors, Drew. I mean, you know, as a health professional that go into knowing and then walking the bridge to doing. And Dan Party's talked about this on the show where it's like, look, you could have all the data, all the knowledge, all the packets and books and plans. But if you're not inspired from your heart, like from your soul, you're not going to do it. And so I'm curious for your heart and soul, when you gain the 60 pounds, you know, you're like uncomfortable. You talked about rubbing a uh, pregnancy cream on your belly at one point. I mean, you went through the gauntlet, man. Like you really went to a place where there was some emotional toll that was, that was enforced. And I'm curious if in that space, do you feel like that's what kind of contributed to the breakup of, of you and, and your previous wife? Or was that something completely separate? That's a great question. And I have no problems diving into this at all. Um, it had nothing to do with us breaking up. I'm actually coming out with a podcast very soon. I'm not sure when this one airs, but on August 23rd of me being vulnerable with my audience about why. But getting back to your question, no, it had nothing to do with me being overweight because she's dated guys who were overweight before in the past. And it had nothing to do with how I looked. It was how I viewed myself. So this was the biggest difficulty with this journey is I did not know how to handle being overweight for the first time in my life. I was this overweight guy and I was so worried about what other people were going to think of me because growing up your entire life in shape, part of your identity is based off of what your body looks like. And once I lost my abs, my muscle definition, I freaked out, honestly. I wanted to go up to complete strangers and say, hey, I'm not really overweight. This is just an experiment. <laughs> go to my website. This is what <laughs> I normally look like uh, because I freaked out. And I you know, would cover up in front of my wife at the time, stepping out of the shower you know, in intimate situations. Lights were off. I didn't want her to see me naked. I didn't want to see myself naked. I didn't know how to handle being overweight. But that's where I was forced to learn that I am more than my body. There's more to me 
I have more to offer this world than just what my body looks like. But it took me going through this transition to finally step back and say, wow, like, you know, I'm more than what my physical body looks like. But it was this emotional journey of me feeling super uncomfortable in my own skin, not knowing how to deal with it out in public. And, you know, I was forced to to see myself from a different perspective for the first time in my life. And that's when I started to learn these lessons, which helped me view my clients in a different light, too, where I had empathy and respect and a better understanding versus who I was before. Man, and you know, it's interesting because when you took this on, at that time, you were still a neuromonitoring technician, right? At the tip of this journey? Yeah, man. Good job. You did your homework. A lot of people don't know what that is or how to pronounce that. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it was called neuromonitoring. I still kept my job, which was interesting because I was working with doctors and nurses. They saw me. <laughs> They're like, Drew, what's going on, man? What are you eating? <laughs> so many people. And and I told them, most of them about it, and they were just shocked at how quickly I was gaining the weight. And um, the interesting thing that I learned about the, uh, you know, working in a hospital is that those are some of the most unhealthiest places. And it was easy to like in between surgeries to go into the break room, boom, soda, snacks, cookies, crackers, all the junk food you can think of, which, you know, here we are trying to save people's health. Right. Yeah. And the doctors and nurses are sometimes some of the most unhealthiest people. So it was really interesting. But they definitely advised me like, hey, you shouldn't do this. But I was like, look, it's only for six months. I got this. But man, I had to upgrade my the size of my scrubs almost every month because <laughs> of how quickly the the weight was piling on. Okay. So I'm visualizing you, you know, you're a technician, you're in the medical industry, you're seeing people that are unhealthy. Like we said, you're at the counter that one day in the kitchen. You're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to gain weight. I've been in fitness my whole life. I'm going to understand what this actually means for people. Did you ever have any idea if you were to take a breath and and see the impact you'd have, like what you'd create with fit to fat to fit.com and, and now with your projects in keto? I mean, did it ever even occur to you that it would grow as massive as it's grown now? Not at all. The the biggest my mind could expand was maybe the local news will pick it up here in Utah, right? And that was that was it. I had no idea. And that's what people that don't really know me or understand me on social media, they're like, oh, you know, good job marketing this. Like it was just a marketing scheme of how you, you know, <laughs> yeah. just wanted to make money. I'm like, honestly, you guys, I had no connections. I had no marketing strategy other than uh, learn to create a YouTube channel and a website and then just post about it on Facebook, which Instagram and Twitter weren't really big yet back then, but I did eventually catch mm-hmm. on. So honestly, a lot of it was luck if, you know, for how big it got, but it, it was a lot of struggles, a lot of ups and downs, uh, going through a lot of like losing a lot of friendships along the way. And then eventually, you know, knowing when to leave my job in the medical field to take on fit to fit full time and a lot of, um, you know, kind of rock bottom moments where I had to learn some valuable lessons of like, okay, this is, this is my business now. And this is how you run yeah. it. And this is how you make it successful. Cause even though I was getting all this, this fame and attention, it didn't equate to dollars in my bank account. So that's another discussion for another podcast, but it was very interesting to kind of go through those growing pains of like, okay, all of a sudden this is my new life. This is my new career. How do I navigate through these waters that I've never been through before? I've always worked for somebody. God, you bring up such an awesome point where, you know, people make this transition from like yourself, you're in the medical field. There's people that are listening to the show that are trainers or health professionals or Drew, there's somebody sitting in a cube and they're like, I hate my job. How much do you think that being in a job you dislike or even let's be honest, hate really puts that existential stress on your nervous system and doesn't allow the body to let go of weight? I mean, you work with so many clients, man. Have you seen this where you're doing something in your life you hate and that's kind of why you can't let go of the weight? I see it all the time and that's one thing we don't really factor in is is how stress impacts us 
especially our hormones, which uh, if your hormones aren't um, balanced, then that's going to lead to uh, your body not functioning properly. And we always think weight loss is so linear, right? Eat less calories, you lose weight. It seems so simple. It's not always that simple. And so these outside factors of your lifestyle, for example, your job where you're not fulfilled, you're looking for these these outside sources to bring you happiness. In reality, you're not you're in control of your own happiness no matter your circumstances. Sometimes you can't control your circumstances. So for example, like, you know, you're not always going to have this ideal job that you're fulfilling your passion and making money that uh, you can pay the bills and, you know, you have a safety net. That's not always going to be the ideal situation for every single person. I get that. I totally get that. But let's say you do have to work at a job that sucks or you hate, but you're able to make money. The only thing you can change is, or control is your attitude about that situation. So your circumstances aren't ideal. You can still find ways to be happy. And that happiness, in my opinion, even though it's not measurable all the time, it really does factor into your physical health. The physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual, in my opinion, are all tied together. And when one is lacking, the others lack as well. And so for me, this is the kind of stuff that has changed me as a trainer or a coach because before this stuff wasn't quantifiable. You can't you know, measure this. So it didn't matter to me before yeah. it was all about workouts and meal plans and nutrition. And that's all that mattered. But in reality, if you're really going to help someone transform, not just their body, they, they have to know how to transform on the mental, the emotional and spiritual side as well. And so these are the things that I focus on now, because like you said, you could give someone the best meal plans and workouts yeah. and the best food and the best trainer. None of that matters if that person doesn't know how to overcome these mental and emotional challenges that they're struggling with. And I feel like, if, especially in the fitness industry, if we taught people how to focus on overcoming these challenges, the physical challenges that they're facing will be so much easier. It's not going to be night and day where all of a sudden like, hey, if I meditate, I lose 10 pounds. But at the same time, it could why? Because your stress levels and your cortisol goes down. So it's all tied together, but people don't see that. So it's people like you, Josh, and these kinds of messages getting out there. Yeah. So people can really embrace this as a true lifestyle change instead of just uh, what diet program am I going to do for the next 60 days? Drew, you are speaking our language, my friend, because we're at this intersection of emotional and physical intelligence for Wellness Force. And I just know so much that your message, the power, the authenticity that you speak about. Let's talk about vulnerability. In our space, in health and wellness, I've seen people, and maybe you can attest to this, that are openly vulnerable to the point where it just seems like it's too much vulnerability. How do you know when to be vulnerable and when to kind of pause and, and wait for the right time? That, oh man, this is a great question. Let me give you an example first. Um, uh, for my own personal journey, this gives, because when it comes down to this, this kind of stuff, vulnerability, it's so individual that I can't just say this is the way it is for everybody. But me personally, you know, let me give you a personal experience. Uh, you know, I've been divorced for three years now. And me and my ex, you know, we were pretty vulnerable, not about it when it first happened, but we waited until we were in a good place. We were both in a good place emotionally to share about our divorce because it was a surprise we people saw us on social media as this happily married fit couple and oh like you guys look great and perfect all we heard that all the time but inside we were both struggling yeah it wasn't until we put in the work with seeing life coaches uh reading books like Brene brown's daring greatly and rising strong and you know we started doing meditation and positive affirmations not together but separately just to heal ourselves on an individual level and then once we were both in a good place emotionally and spiritually to share, hey, everybody, here's, you know, we're actually divorced, even though we lived together for a little bit. 
it took us, we had to put in the work and, and really truly own our story on an individual level before we came out and, and talked about it publicly. Yeah. So versus like, if it had just happened, I'm like, okay, I'm going to share this with the world, but I wasn't ready for how people were going to receive it or how I was individually with that decision. If I wasn't 100% sure, like this is the right decision, I wouldn't have done it. And so for me personally, you have to be willing to own your story. And, and I feel like if you share something and someone responds in a negative way that you're not ready for, I don't feel like that's a good time for you to be vulnerable. If it's still bugging you, how people are responding. But yeah. if you own your story and, and you're ready to be vulnerable with certain people that you trust or even publicly, you have to be ready for that negativity and realize that that negativity that sometimes will, people will come after you has nothing to do with you. I think that's one sign of people that can really say, okay, I'm ready to be vulnerable is mm. if you're, if you're willing to accept that, that kind of backlash. I did a podcast episode that's uh, wellness force Friday, number seven, and it was tell the truth until it stops hurting. And I think this is what people get to step into. It's like, listen, you, everybody has stress. We all go through it. I mean, look, you run a kind of what I feel like a fitness dynasty, like a health and wellness dynasty with fit to fat to fit. The pressure sometimes can be overwhelming, right? Even when you're able to travel and do what you do, there's still moments, Drew, I'm sure where you probably get overwhelmed. How do you deal with overwhelm from an emotional intelligence standpoint? Usually it causes me to reflect on, on what I'm missing in my life. Like, what am I not doing that would be beneficial? So, for example, I do get overwhelmed being a, a dad and trying to take care of my two girls in a world that is very, very hard on girls, especially in society with, you know, the pressure that, that's put on, on women nowadays to look a certain way and, and body image issues. So I'm very... I get stressed out about that kind of stuff easily. And then I got my business, you know, trying to make it successful and trying to be authentic in my message. The stress does add up. And so for me, when I do get overwhelmed, I usually have to take a step back and look at my life. Like, what am I not doing? Like, for example, I'm a huge fan of meditation and positive affirmations and yeah. a daily gratitude list. But I will be honest, sometimes having kids, I can't always have a set schedule where every day is perfect, where I'm in control of how it goes. Like sometimes, you know, if my daughter has a nightmare in the middle of the night and wakes me up and my sleep is affected, which affects my workout, which affects my schedule for the day, that kind of stuff, you know, I can't really prepare for. And so there's times where I, you know, skip meditation and positive affirmations. And some days it's like, okay, good, I'm good. I survived. Yeah. But other days it's really easy where I'm like, you know what? It's been two weeks and I haven't. And this is why I'm allowing myself to get stressed out about my daughter, you know, freaking out over the dumbest thing, <laughs> you know, whereas before I would be able to handle that situation a lot more smoothly and with patience instead of just being so reactive, I'm able to respond uh, in a mature way. And so uh, usually if I take a step back and reflect on my life, there's something that's missing that's out of the norm that I realize I'm getting lazy about. And so that's that's kind of like my checks and balances I feel like when it comes to nutrition and just living in our body, like living well in our body, we have this relationship with food that you and Melissa have talked about in your podcast. We also have a relationship with self, Drew, our identity, like who we see our, each other as, who I look at in the mirror and what kind of messages do I tell him? Earlier in life, you have actually mentioned that there was some anxiety pieces that you got to get through, caring so much about what other people thought of you earlier in your life. How did you transcend that? Because I think people look at you now and they're like, whoa, Drew's got his shit together. <laughs> I like where this podcast is going. I love these types of questions. Um, so a lot of that had to do with my perception of, of growing up 
in, in the culture I grew up in. So three different factors. One was my religion, and my perception of how I was supposed to be within that religion. Two is my family, the culture that my parents raised me in, my perception of, of how they expected me to be. And then three was the culture of sports. And so my perception of these three things combined caused me to want to always please, you know, my coaches, my parents, my church leaders, trying to be perfect, right? Trying to look perfect for them. But in reality, I was just a normal kid, normal human being with weaknesses, but I did not have an outlet for talking about those weaknesses or dealing with them other than you discipline yourself, you don't do it. And if you do it, uh, you better not do it again. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) you can, you could think about this from a football or a wrestling perspective, like you don't make mistakes. If you do, you lose and you get yelled at. Same thing with like religion. If you sin, there's some type of punishment. If you go confess, uh, at least the way, you know, in, in my religion growing up, that was the perception of like, okay, you ha- you have a serious sin. You got to go to your church leaders and confess. And then there's some type of punishment so that you go through this repentance process. And then in my family, it was like, hey, if you don't have an A+, plus, you basically failed you know i'm saying at least this was my perception you know i'm saying like as a kid yeah and so that caused me to eventually break later on in life and i probably won't get into all of that now you can listen to my podcast episode Mm -hmm. breaking it down for you but in a nutshell that was kind of the, the perception of how i was raised and that's why it caused me to on the inside hate who i was but on the outside actually like everything was fine and i was happy and life was good Man, when I was a trainer, I have talked about this. I lost 80 pounds myself. So I was like 275. I went all the way down. I did low carb in 2002. I starved myself. I mean, I ate like 1500 calories, 1400 calories for months. And then I gained all the weight back. And that was what put me on my journey where I was like, screw this. I'm just going to move to Hawaii and find my soul. And so I moved out (laughs) to Hawaii and um, I'm working at a gym and I go up to a a 24 hour and a manager comes up to me and says, Hey, you should think about being a trainer. I've seen you lose weight and I've seen what you've been doing in the gym. And I was like, what's a trainer? And it came to me, like something came to me because of what I was experiencing in my life. Looking back Drew, I mean, do you feel like health and wellness was always going to be your path? Was there a moment where you knew like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life? That's a great question. So basically, let me tell you about my transition uh, from going from the neuromonitoring to fit to fit, fit full time a little bit before that. So right out of college, I, first of all, you know, growing up, I was always in shape. Even out of college, my first job was a financial analyst working for Chrysler right out of college. Great job, good pay, felt very accomplished with that. And, but I still continue to work out and, and, you know, be in shape. In 2000. Eight, I took a buyout from Chrysler. We moved to Utah where, you know, I was told the economy was a little bit better, you know, around that time. <laughs> and uh, and I looked for a job. I thought for sure I'd be able to land one. And I had so many interviews, but because of the economy, I couldn't find a job to save my life. And so I was like, okay, what am I passionate about? Well, I know I love health and I'm passionate about fitness. So maybe I'll just get certified as a trainer and see where that goes. So I did it through NASM and I started training clients part-time. While I was, you know, I was actually working construction. So I went from financial analyst for a Fortune 500 mm. company to doing construction just to provide for my family. And then I landed the neuromonitoring job in the medical field, which is a complete 180. But I kept my, my training certificate uh, up to date and I still continue to take on clients part time. And then that's when Fit to Fit, Fit kind of came about and I had that idea and then I transitioned. So I knew that it was always a passion of mine. Yeah. And I kind of, put my money where my mouth was in 2009 and became certified as a trainer because I knew that was, you know, something I was already passionate about. 
this passion that you have, I think a lot of people do training part-time and they're looking to maybe like ask themselves the internal question, how do I do what I love full-time? That process of discovery and just identity about like, how do we cross the chasm between what where we are now and where we want to be? How have you called in the support, maybe in those early phases from friends, from community, from family? What did it look like for you to build support and, and pull in the people that you deserved to make you where you are now? Yeah, I mean- when I started Fit by Fit, I mean, it was something that I just reached out to family and friends because that's all I knew how to market back then. I was like, hey, you guys, I'm doing this crazy journey. <laughs> Please uh, share this and and support me and let me know what you think. And so that that was kind of, you know, part of that process of naturally growing my brand organically. But yeah. part of my problem was like, like we talked about before, I was so worried about what other people thought that I would receive advice from 10 different people with 10 10 different options of what I should do and their opinions. And I would be like, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Once I started to think for myself, like for example, the idea of fit to bed fit, and then even just more recently with my brand of the keto diet and that kind of taking off and me taking control of my brand by myself. And, you know, obviously we don't have time to dive into all of that, but basically I was Mm -hmm. relying on other people to support my brand um, but it failed time after time after time. And it wasn't until recently, uh, around November of last year, where I was like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done of you know, having people sponsor me and, and relying on these other companies to, to provide my main source of income. I'm going to take care of my brand by myself. And it's the best decision I've ever done financially and from a business perspective because I'm in control now. Whereas before, I was relying on other people and listening to their opinions. And so for me... I had to kind of step out of that of of listening to friends and family for ideas and and had to listen to my inner voice for once and trust it for the first time in my life. It was scary. Don't get me wrong. And it wasn't instantaneous yeah. success. It took a long time, a lot of <laughs> rock bottom moments, but that's where the greatest lessons are learned. You've mentioned before how it's really like our discipline. The discipline is what brings us freedom. Mm-hmm. And there was something that you mentioned about make people that make their bed in the AM. I think you had read a book and I've heard this before too. I think Tim Ferriss talks about this. People that just do one simple thing to start their day on the right foot, you know, they make their bed. They are four to five times more likely to achieve any other goal they set. How has discipline been a continuum for you in your life? Yes, it was Tim Ferriss that mentioned that. And it, it instantly clicked where I'm like, you know what? This is so silly in a way because this isn't going to help me lose weight or get fit or (laughs) achieve goals. But I do feel like discipline equals freedom. If you can make it a habit to where you don't even have to think about it. And it's just one thing, like for example, my bed, I still make my bed every single day now after hearing that. And I put out a challenge in January to have other people do it with me. And I still do it to this day, even though like when I wake up, I just, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to sleep in it again. Anyways, tonight, just leave it as is. But I've kept up with that and I really do feel like if you can be disciplined enough to do something as simple and small as making your bed, you can be disciplined enough to do the bigger things, you know, eventually like, you know, eating healthy food and meal prepping and getting your workout in. Even though those things can be hard for some people, you start out slow and you build up from there. And so for me, I feel like if you're just getting started on a lifestyle change, start very simple. Even with the non-physical things like making your bed or taking a cold shower every day just to see if you can do it straight for 30 days and see how you feel. And then from there, maybe move up and, and upgrade those types of habits to become bigger ones. 
Man, this is so powerful because this intersection of discipline and freedom, I think a lot of people drew are like, well, look, if I have to put it in my calendar, if I have to do it, then it's not really freedom because then it's an obligation that I must do. But it's actually paradoxically the other way around. If it's in the calendar, if it's something you're committed to, then you don't have to waste any of your bank account for decision fatigue. You don't have to ask yourself, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? Should I do it? Well, my friend's not doing it. It's like this incessant conversation that can be really exhausting. What is your mindset around decision fatigue? Have you explored this topic on your podcast? Uh, I haven't talked about it on my podcast, but I go through it every single day pretty much where I'm like, I have so many decisions <laughs> to make, especially when I have my girls. It's like I have so many decisions to make. And sometimes, you know, you know what? I'm like, I am just going to take a break from everything. And what I've done recently that that tends to help out with that is to go sit and meditate for five minutes and just kind of clear my mind, let everything settle. And then from there, I kind of uh, reorganize <laughs> or reprioritize my to-do list for the day and say, you know what, I can take this out or I feel differently about this. This isn't that important. And to me, honestly, that's been a game changer that I've something that I've done recently. And uh, the decision fatigue is real, though, man. And sometimes it's, you know, analysis until paralysis kind of thing. Yes. Where you're just like, I have so much to do. I'm not going to do any of it. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. that's just part of being human. But there are these little hacks. Like I said, the meditation thing helps me, uh, you know, in the middle of the day just to kind of reprioritize my to-do list. And I think, you know, a lot of people can benefit from something so simple and small like that. And actionable too. I mean, people have a lot of information out there. Let's talk about keto in just one minute because we had a ton of questions from different friends and people in the wellness force community about that. We're going to drill into you about keto. Is that cool, Drew? (laughs) Sure, man. But before we get there, man, this last question around decisions and habits. When we look at someone who is in the state of overwhelm, they're listening right now. You know, they have many things that are stacked against them. They're, They're not being the Boy Scout, as you talked about. They're not always being prepared. How do you think people can do maybe three four or five things to be that Boy Scout mentality to always be prepared? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, one of the biggest things that has helped me and I think has helped other people is the power of accountability. And that's why, I, for example, I issued my challenge in January of six, a list of six things you can do every single day that are non, that have nothing to do with health and fitness really, but that, you know, not directly, but at the same time, they're just little disciplinary things. I feel like if you get people on board with doing some type of challenge together with you, even though it might sound simple or, or silly in a way, I think the power of accountability is something that is overlooked. But if you could, you know, sign up for a Spartan race or you, you know, sign up for a 5K, for example, or some type of, you know, small little challenge like making your bed every day for 30 days, but you have people you're doing it with, I feel like that accountability is going to help you in those moments where you're just feeling lazy for the day, but you know your brother, your sister, your friends are are checking in on you like, hey, did you do this? Because I know it sucks. I'm doing it too. Yeah. You can do it as well. Like, let's do this together instead of, just trying to take on the world all by yourself. Yeah, this is almost like, a, you know, Gretchen Rubin talks about emotional contagion. When you're around happy people, you become more happy. When you're around assholes, you start <laughs> acting more like an asshole. I also feel there's habitual contagion when, you know, one positive habit bleeds into another. Would you say that the community aspect is the most important point in enforcing this new habit so that it sticks? Honestly, yes. And that's where I get a lot of my ideas sometimes is listening to different podcasts and different people's routines. Like I'm a big fan of Sean Stevenson and Ben Greenfield and Tim Ferriss and these other podcasters where I'm like, I'm learning new habits and hacks and routines that they have. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try that out because I'm a big fan of of self-experimentation, not just in the health and fitness industry, but like in different aspects of my life. And so I've, I kind of get ideas from other people sometimes and I try it out. You know, a lot of them are, are game changers for me. Some of them, you know, don't really, 
stick, but that's okay. I'm at least out there experimenting and finding what is optimal for me, not just with you know nutrition and exercise programs. That's cool, but in other ways that with these other hacks and learning from from other people as well. And so I feel like that's why I love podcasts, for example, and that's one way of doing it. Or you know just like you know with your friends or family, a small community, uh, you can really be a big influence in other people's lives if you you know, are learning these, these hacks and you're kind of, you know, challenging other people to do it with you. Well, let's talk about this ketogenic diet. And I say this ketogenic diet because this is not old. I mean, it's brand new for a lot of people. However, when you look at the science, it's something that's been used for millennia to treat seizures in kids and to treat medical patients and obesity. Why now though, Drew, why do you think that our industry is focused so much right now on the ketogenic diet, man? That's a great question. I really do feel like it has to do with a lot of influencers nowadays that have made it mainstream. For example, the reason I got into it or experimented with it was when I first heard Dr. Dominic Diagostino on the Tim Ferriss podcast talking about the science behind it. And I had no idea there was that much science behind the ketogenic diet. Whereas before, you know, six years ago when I did Fit to Bad to Fit, for example, it wasn't really talked about. There was no science really in the fitness community to back up the ketogenic diet, at least not in the mainstream. Now I feel like, you know, ever since then, probably about three or four years ago, it started to become more and more mainstream where you had celebrities talking about and then you had people you know I, I went on dr oz last summer talking about the ketogenic diet and the benefits and how it's changed my life and then you have people like tim tebow and lebron james and these ceos talking about the uh, how it's changed their life and then now there's so much more research being done on the ketogenic diet you know with uh, i don't know if you know uh, dr jacob wilson and ryan lowry and some other doctors out there that are doing these clinical studies in real life applications of this diet that are becoming more mainstream because I think social media is taking it to a whole new level where this science that used to be only passed around in the in the medical community is now being passed around from, you know, podcasters and health coaches and it's more accessible now than it ever has been. And so that's why I feel like it's so relevant now. Yeah. And there's so much ambiguity. I mean, God, there's not a day that goes by where I don't get a question about like, hey, should I be eating like crackling pork rinds for breakfast? And I, my immediate answer is no, dude, they're, mm -hmm. they're fried in trans fat. Give us the skinny here. Can you cut through all the bull crap out there? Like, tell us, Drew, like, who is keto really for? I feel like it can be for a lot of people. The problem is when any diet becomes mainstream, people look look at that diet as, okay, this is the next Hollywood diet that I'm going to do for 60 days. And I've seen all these transformations of people losing all this weight and people talking about it on the media. So once it becomes mainstream, you're going to have that, that twist, if you will, of the media taking control of it and kind of blowing it up more than what it is. I know that, yes, you can lose weight on it. You can lose weight on any diet. <laughs> yeah. But I think people overpromise with with how the keto diet works when it comes to sh straight weight loss and fat loss. It's not, like I said, it's not linear. It's not black and white. Like, oh, if you eat keto, boom, you automatically lose weight, you lose fat. It can be used for that. But the reason I'm a big fan of it is because of all the therapeutic applications and the promising science showing this diet so effective in other areas outside of weight loss. But we get so stuck on that because here in America, we're so obsessed with the diet mentality of what's the quickest way to lose the most amount of weight with the least amount of effort yeah. looking for that magic pill. Oh, man, that sentence is huge. I just posted something about this. I'm sure you're familiar with Paul Check. He's kind of like the mm -hmm. holistic gangster. Yeah. And he he posted about a response to keto because he's been getting so many questions about this. And he's like, listen, part of being adult is coming to this realization that there's no shortcuts to doing the work of living well. 
Yeah. And I'm curious how you think this blends, Drew, when we, we look at living our life well in this body, we only get one. How does keto play into that? I mean, what does that look like for first identifying if keto is right for us and then the beginning stages of that? Yeah, that's a great question. In my opinion, I think it would be beneficial for everybody out there to become your own self-experimentation to find out what is optimal for you. Now, in my opinion, you do need to give keto a fair share and try it out for a minimum of 60 days being consistent, not doing it for a few days. Because if you really understand how ketosis works and how your body shifts over from burning glucose as fuel to burning ketones as fuel, you have to understand that there's a transitionary period because most of us have grown up uh, running off of a glucose-based diet, right? <laughs> We've been running yeah. off of glucose for years, and now all of a sudden to to uh, shift over and try and run off ketones, it's not going to be night and day where all of a sudden your body's like, oh, yeah, we know how to shift over from glucose to ketones without even thinking about it. It takes a good time to get keto adapted. So I tell people a minimum of 60 days. Some people, it's more. It's not, some people say 90 days. But the problem is the people are trying to do it for a week or two. They feel horrible. Yeah. And then they're like, man, that sucks. I'm never doing that again. That was horrible and it didn't work. Well, obviously, you got to give your body time to transition over to become keto adapted. Like I said, minimum of 60 days. And then from there, after the 60 days, what I recommend is for people to test their blood ketones, which right now is the only gold standard way to know if you're in ketosis. And then from there, you can test your carb threshold, like how many carbs you can actually get in before you're knocked out of ketosis mm. and your protein threshold as well to know how much protein you can consume because your, your body can convert protein into glucose, but our limit of how much protein we can have is different for each person. And so the only way to know for sure is to test your blood ketones. And that's what's hard about the keto diet is even for me, I have a program it's been really successful for a lot of people, but it's so individual. Yeah. You can't just say, hey, 70% fat, 25% protein, 5% carbs works for everybody, but it's a good start. But the only way to know for sure is for people to kind of take hold of their health and really start their own self-experiments with the keto diet, but really give it a fair share of at least 60 days is my opinion. This is why I've been so excited to talk to you about keto, Matt. I've been waiting for this because there's so many different parts of this. This is not just, hey, eat a bunch of fat and then get through the keto <laughs> flu. It's not like that. There's many different stages of this. When we look at cycling, I got the pleasure of interviewing Doc Parsley. He's a Navy special warfare kind of sleep specialist doctor. And he was like, listen, I do keto and I don't actually cycle like normal people do. He's identified for him. He doesn't even need to cycle. But I believe, Drew, for most people, when we look at this gluconeogenesis component and then the brain using fat for fuel, there has to be a cyclical period of keto, correct? Yeah, I think for most people in a real world application, it does need to be cyclical. Now, for example, for me, you know, I've been doing it for three years, but that doesn't mean that I haven't had any carbs for three years. Uh, I have two daughters and I like to live a balanced life and I like to, you know, enjoy life with, you know, holidays and birthdays and eating cake. And yes, I will have that, that food every once in a while. And I don't beat myself up. It doesn't make me feel guilty. Yeah. So that's one thing I think people need to realize is they get so religious about nutrition to where they're feeling guilty about what they're eating, what they're putting in their body. But I mean, unless you want to be super strict, like I know some doctors who are strictly on keto and they never cheat and they've been doing it for years and they're totally healthy and they're totally fine. But most of us, you know, have families or kids or traditions that we want to still maintain and, and live that type of you know, normal lifestyle, if you will, quote unquote, normal lifestyle. Yeah. And I think that's totally fine. I really do feel like our bodies were meant to run off both glucose and ketones. And that's what's so amazing is, is learning how to do that in a balanced way. But I, in my opinion, you do need to become keto adapted first if yeah. you want to receive the benefits of running off ketones 
which takes, you know, that initial 60 to 90 days period of being strict. Wow, Drew, let's break that down, Matt. So 60 to 90 days really for this adaptation. But the keto flu is what I think scares most people, right? They're like, listen, I'm going to feel like crap. I know that uh, I talked to Dr. JT about this when I was in LA and he was like, yeah, you're going to feel like shit (laughs) for maybe two weeks, right? How long did you get through the keto flu? Is that different for everyone? Does it matter how much health they have coming into actually starting the keto program? It is different for everyone, but I do feel like there are some hacks that everybody can implement to minimize the keto flu symptoms for most people. And this works for most people. The number one thing is to drink a lot more water than you're already drinking. And then the second thing is to add in a lot of uh, healthy, nutrient-dense salts to your diet. So things like sea salt or pink Himalayan salt. I'm a big fan of these these Hawaiian salts, these red and black Hawaiian salts. Very nutrient-dense. And it, the, the biggest thing it comes down is to balancing out your electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium. Yeah. People become deficient in that because their body expels a lot of water when they first go on keto. So that's why people see a lot of weight loss initially is because their body's flushing a lot of water. And with that water, they're flushing out a lot of these minerals from their body as well. So they need to replenish those. And that's why people feel so horrible is because of the lack of sodium, potassium, or magnesium. And another issue is that we've been taught that salt's bad for us. And so a lot of people are afraid of (laughs) adding salt to their food. And they think, okay, well, maybe just a little bit of salt. I'm talking about a lot of salt. For example, every day before I go work out, I take about a fourth to a half a teaspoon of salt and I kind of just put it in my mouth and chug a bunch of water afterwards. Mm. Um, and I feel amazing. Uh, no cramping. I'll see a lot of people get cramps uh, when they first start out on keto. And so I think that these things can help people with the keto flu. The last thing that I've seen help out a lot of people is uh, exogenous ketones, really minimizing, especially during the transitionary phase of those first two weeks can help a lot of people. And so these are my hacks that I've seen work for, for majority of people. Wow. And we're not going to have time to go into the entire nuances and lists of questions for this. And you do have an awesome program. We're going to link this at wellnessforce.com forward slash fit to fat to fit. You can join Drew's informational group there. Also, Drew, you have a private group and you have some programs around keto because it's not something you can really even dive into and fully understand in just 30 minutes or so. I mean, this is a a lifelong change for a lot of people. And uh, I'm curious what the common threads are when people start. What do they do that's wrong? Maybe one or two things that they make a mistake on when they begin keto. What I think like you mentioned is they think, okay, well, I'm just going to start eating fat and then I'll be in ketosis. <laughs> it's, it's not as simple as that. To get into ketosis is, is first of all, it's a lack of glucose. So you really do, it's not about eating more fat. It's, it's really about eating less carbs. So I recommend 25 grams uh, of total carbs or less for the first 60 days to become keto adapted. Uh, so that's one mistake is people think if I just eat fat, I'll be in ketosis. Mm. The second thing, honestly, is testing your blood ketones. Like I said, it's so individual, but it does take some work. You got to go order the, uh, you know, like the precision extra off of Amazon. You got to prick your finger to see what your blood ketone levels are. But that's the only true way to know if you're really in ketosis. It's hard to tell. It's hard to go off of, I think I'm in ketosis because I'm eating all this fat. And so not really knowing if you're in ketosis is a big mistake I think people make. So invest in it when you first get started. It's going to help you in the long run when, you're, when you've been doing keto, if you can really you know, experiment on yourself to know if you're truly in ketosis. And, so, and then the other thing is it's not really being prepared with meals. Like they have no idea. They just think they're eating a bunch of butter and coconut oil and bacon. And yeah. 
there's a go to Pinterest, <laughs> type in keto anything, and you'll find recipes galore. There's an abundance of keto foods nowadays that make it more convenient. Um, but people tend to just get bored with you know three or four things on keto when in reality there's so many options for you. And the cool thing is that it, if let's say you're a vegetarian or a vegan or you want to do it paleo, you can. Mm. It's still possible. People think they just need to eat meat. You don't think that's too challenging for people to be vegetarian and do keto? If they already know where their protein is coming from and they're not eating meat, if they're used to getting their protein from vegetarian-based sources, it's still possible. It really is. I have a lot of people doing a vegetarian version of keto. Vegan keto is more challenging in my opinion and it takes a lot more work because you're not adding in any animal products, which is really hard. So you're eating a lot of coconut products and avocado to bump up your fats. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's still possible, but it, it, it is more challenging as a vegan versus a vegetarian because most people is, that are, are vegetarian will eat, you know, eggs sometimes, sometimes fish, uh, not all the time, but you know, each person is different. It's still possible. Yes. Okay. And I really want to emphasize for someone that's interested in keto, it's sodium, potassium, magnesium. You have to have, like Drew mentioned, salts in your system. I'm curious with the measurements too, Drew, you know, there's a company and they're actually, one of their guys is here. I, I did a walk with them earlier last week. They have an acetone measurement for IP around this to measure acetone in the breath to check exactly where you are in your keto stage. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Which company is it? It's called Level. Level, Level. L-E-V-L. I met them at Paleo FX. They're at Paleo FX, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm actually on day five. So I'm checking to see like where my acetone level is at. I've never done the blood prick, but I just feel like, you know, maybe for a lot of people, they get scared about doing the blood prick. Have you ever come across that as an objection to people even doing the ketotic measurements? Totally. Yeah. A lot of people don't like to prick their finger, you know, once a day or multiple times per day. So I get that. And I've heard really good things about level. I haven't personally used it, so I can't attest to it. Although I did, you know, test it out at PaleoFX, which I thought was really unique. It was different. The one before that was, um, there was one called Ketonics and that was another, a ketone breath measuring device. Uh, but I've heard levels really, really good and for good things about it. It sounds like you're enjoying it versus the pricking of the finger. I have a thing about needles. I'm not, <laughs> not like a huge <laughs> fan with needles, you know? So I just feel like the highlights of really keto, it's like, listen, this is a lifestyle change. Make sure that you have the right education, the right support. Do you have a community built around people that might be experiencing the keto flu? I have a private Facebook group where I coach, you know, couple thousand people yeah. on doing the keto diet and I have other coaches that kind of work for me helping coach these people. Yeah. And it's to varying degrees. And I think honestly it comes down to, uh, the imbalance of the electrolytes, especially when they first get started. Got it. And most people like those hacks that I mentioned before their keto flu will be minimized. I don't think it completely goes away for some people. It has some people like I don't, I felt great. I felt fine following these guidelines. Other people are like, I'm following the guidelines. I'm still feeling, you know, lightheaded. I'm still, you know, I still get cramps every now and then and I'm not feeling 100% yet. For some people, it does take longer to become keto adapted. That's why I say a minimum of 60 to 90 days for most people just sticking with it. And then I feel like, you know, once you become keto adapted, then you can really explore with, okay, how many carbs can I eat per day? What kind of carbs? Uh, like for example, I love Rob Wolf's new book, uh, wired to eat with his seven day carb test of knowing which carbs impact you differently. Uh, which is so interesting because you know, some people might be a banana for some people might be a cookie or white rice. Like that's why the more self experiments you can do, the better off you'll be with finding out what's truly optimal for you. 
Man, you're in the right home because I'm an N equals one fanatic. Uh, I'm actually looking at getting a continuous glucose monitor. Have you ever played around with that yourself? Not yet, but I'm actually looking at getting one too. I just had a company okay. reach out to me that they're sending me one uh, very soon. So Okay, I got to connect with you about that. <laughs> okay. So Drew, this is the last round of our show. This is where we get seven questions. We're going to get to know you a lot deeper. Are you ready? Oh, okay, let's do it. <laughs> now, you don't know what these are, but don't worry. They're not going to be too gnarly. Okay. How has your wellness practice changed since you became a dad? We have a lot of parents that listen. That's a great question. Question. Taking time out for myself and realizing that if I take care of myself, I'm pouring from uh, more of a full cup versus if I don't take time for myself, I'm pouring, trying to pour from an empty cup. So that's one piece of advice I would give to people is take the time out of your day to take care of yourself because then you're able to pour from a, a full cup to your kids. What's one of the best pieces of advice that you might have received yourself or even that you received when it comes to forgiveness, the power of forgiveness? You have to learn to forgive, not for that person, but for yourself, of freeing yourself from that that energy, that negative energy. Uh, so even though that person might not deserve your forgiveness, you're you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for yourself. And for me, that's totally changed my perspective of of why to forgive. Mm. What's um, one of your greatest growth edges right now? You know, David Dita, we talk about this on the show quite a bit, this intersection of physical, emotional intelligence, either physical or emotional. Do you feel like right now you have an edge that you're really grinding into? Oh, man, we're going deep here. <laughs> for me. <laughs> this is wellness for us, man. Yeah, for me, it is balancing the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. But I will be honest with you. I'm a single guy. I haven't had a girlfriend since my divorce. And part of it has to do with my fears of relationships and overcoming those fears. And I feel like my edge is me being able to work work on being in a place emotionally where I am ready for a relationship. And I can honestly say this moment in time today, I feel like I'm finally 100% ready for a relationship. Mm. Even though in the past I haven't, even though I was dating, I just knew I wasn't ready. But I've worked on those fears and kind of played them out in my mind and realized that I can let them go. And I'm in a good place now where I'm putting it out there. I'm ready. I'm ready for a relationship. So hopefully yeah. I don't get bombarded with messages after this. But like, <laughs> Hey, I heard you're single. You're looking for someone. To- Your DM on Instagram is going to have like a hundred <laughs> messages once the show goes live. <laughs> Who inspires you when you're not feeling like being your best to actually step into being your best? In other words, who's around you that makes you want to be the greatest version of you when you don't feel like it? That's a great, great question. I, no one right now is, is popping up into my mind, yeah. but I will say when I'm not feeling like I'm being my, the best version of myself, I go back to Brene Brown's book, Staring Greatly and Rising Strong. So not her specifically because I haven't met her, but those books have changed my life in so many ways. And I feel like when I am, my life is lacking, I can go back to those two books and get to that level of where, you know, I feel like I am inspired to move forward in life, kind of uh, pick up the pieces and, and move on like the, those two books specifically. Man, I can't wait to read Christine Hassler's book, Expectation Hangover. Um, we're going to have her on the show. And I got the pleasure of meeting her because I think sometimes, like you had mentioned, like things happen in our life and we're like, okay, what now? So thank you, Drew, for just being honest with us. This is so powerful, man. This is the narrative that is so needed right now in the world, like not just pretending like all of our shit is perfect. Yeah. I love that, man. Yep. Just you get the real me. <laughs> what is wellness to you now? I mean, how would you define wellness? This is a question I love to ask all the guests on the show with all you've done. I mean, you've lost mm-hmm. so much weight and helped so many people regained and lost back and forth. What do you know now about wellness and, and what does that mean to you in your life to be physically and emotionally well? 
I feel like for me, realizing that there's more to me than my physical body, the appearance of it. Yes, I do like to look good. I like to work out. I like to be in shape. But before, I used to be so obsessed with that, thinking that was the definition of me. Wellness to me is, in a way, not completely letting go of that, but not letting that define you, the physical define you. Whereas now, I'm more focused on on being defined by the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, and then the physical kind of being a manifestation of those other aspects of my life. It reflects who I am truly in this life. And I feel like once you know who you are on the on all of those planes, you can truly find what your purpose in this life is all about. But if I feel like if you focus too much on just one thing, especially in the fitness industry, <laughs> it's the physical and that's yeah. the definite, like, oh, you're successful because you have a six pack and you're shredded and you have a large social media following. To me, uh, <laughs> that that's not fulfilling. That's not fulfilling. Whereas before, when I first started in the fitness industry, that's what it was about. But now I've kind of evolved and I feel like wellness is is a combination of all four of those planes combined. Man, so trustable, Drew, and so awesome to have you on the show. We really appreciate you coming on, man. You can learn more about Drew at Fit2, the number two, fat2fit.com. What are you most stoked about for the rest of 2017? Oh, man. First of all, this month, I have a lot of fun adventures planned with my girls. And then, honestly, season two of my TV show will finally, finally be airing January of 2018. So be on the lookout for that. It's It's been a big break between season one and season two because of a lot of different things, but it's finally coming. So I'm excited about that, too. Awesome. Well, we will link that in the show notes. And Drew, such a pleasure to have you on. I didn't know your full story when I met you in person in Austin. And when I did my research and got to dig in, I thought, wow, this is a person who's on the bleeding edge of really helping people. So we appreciate what you do, man. Well, thanks, Josh. And I'm glad that we finally made this happen. So I appreciate your patience with me. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.